What is up, Combo Nation? We are here, man. Episode 499. Don't forget to rate, review, punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already. That's right, man. One away from episode 500, 500. One away, man. Today's show, Woody Page of ESPN. You've probably seen Woody on Around the Horn and many other ESPN shows. He joins in to reflect on his media career, gambling with Michael Jordan, working with Skip Bayless, and much more. You could catch Woody on Around the Horn. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. How are you feeling today? <laughs> Great. Thank you for inviting me to come along. It's a little bit late. I think you wanted to talk to me during the NBA playoffs or the <laughs> finals or something. But I got some um, I got some uh, breaking news. You probably heard the, the, the opening that? game of the NBA season will be the Lakers versus the Nuggets in Denver. October that's 24. exciting that's speaking of that what has the championship mean to the city from your perspective well given that they they and i say the nuggets have not won 47 <laughs> attempts in the nba or in the aba i think it was a, a grand moment in Denver sports history given that the Denver broncos had won three super bowls and the Colorado Avalanche had won three, and at least the Colorado Rockies had been in one World Series. So when you have the Nuggets who have never been to finals or have ever won a championship in either the ABA or the NBA, and I've co- covered them for half century, <laughs> I think you had uh, another guest previously in Bob Ryan. We both started covering pro basketball about the same time around 1970. And Bob covered the NBA initially, and I covered the ABA. And the Boston Celtics played the Denver Nuggets at one point before the teams were merged into the combination of the ABA and the NBA, the four ABA teams. And uh, that's when I first met Bob. We ended up writing three basketball books together. But that's about the first time I met Bob, and he was talking to me about uh, the three-point shot would never go over in the NBA, and the red, white, and blue <laughs> wouldn't fall, wouldn't be accepted in the NBA. But two things happened. One, the three-point shot was adopted by the NBA, which I think made an incredible difference in pro basketball. But he was right about the ABA ball. However, Larry Brown, who was the coach of the ABA team, when he went to the NBA, he would take the red, white, and blue ball on the road with the Nuggets, and they would warm up with a red, white, and blue ball in all of those eastern NBA cities. And I think he got a lot of grief for it, but it was kind of a reminder of where the Nuggets 
and the Indiana Pacers and the New York uh, Nets and the San Antonio Spurs came from. And so uh, you had those four teams join the NBA. And uh, yeah, the, since then, the NBA has had uh, mostly a calm sort of almost half century without too much trouble in negotiations between the players and, and, and the league. And the league has uh, taken leaps and bounds since then. I, I remember going to the NBA uh, All-Star game the year before the four teams were brought into the ABA. And Alvin Adams was the MVP of the NBA that year. And he said, the real MVP is in the other league. <laughs> and wow. he was talking about both Julius Irving and David Thompson. And so uh, that sort of reminded me that uh, at, at the end of the ABA, there were so many good players that were in that league that actually were able to join the NBA. That's not an answer. I, I got so far away from what your question was, but given the history of Denver basketball, that it was such a grand moment that the Nuggets were able to win the championship when uh, I would say most people thinking going into the NBA playoffs that the Nuggets had no chance. I'm not a homer. Anybody that's ever watched me on ESPN for the last 20-something years with no you know, I, I'm I'm not just some local joker who's always behind his team because I criticize Denver teams probably more than any other teams in the country. And I had picked them before the playoffs to win the championship. Wow. I had picked them before the season to win the championship. And I certainly, after having gone through that, picked them when the finals started against the Miami Heat to win. And I think they fooled a lot of people. And uh, the NBA found that in, uh, the Joker, that he was no joke. He was the real thing. I'm not a fan of any team myself. And I understood you've had that perspective from the beginning. Do you think that helped you throughout your career? Because I think there are a lot of fans that are a part of the, so the sports media landscape. That goes back to when Archie Manning, Everybody's familiar with Peyton and, of course, Eli. Archie Manning was a quarterback at Ole Miss, and I was a writer then for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And I had covered civil rights in the South. We covered the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I switched over to writing sports, which was, and I had covered these monumental events. And I wanted to write a column, and the editor of the paper said, well, the only place I can have you write a column is in sports, and you don't want to cover sports. He said, but if you want to try that, that's what I'll do it for a year, and if I'm good, I'd like to come back and write a general column. I grew up as a fan of Mike Royko in Chicago, famous columnist, Jimmy Breslin in New York City, and I wanted to be a general columnist, and so I went to sports, and I never came back. <laughs> so... The point was I was covering the ABA in Memphis in 1970. And as I said, when I came to Denver, I met Bob Ryan, who was probably the most uh, uh, prolific and proficient uh, basketball writer in history. And we had conversations about covering the two leagues and then we were together. And it, it, 
it was so odd that we ended up on the same TV show on ESPN like 45 years later. And we're still doing around the horn with the two of us. But I covered my first game, and I'm actually getting to the answer to your questions. It takes me a while because I'm slow. I think it's out. I'm not very smart. <laughs> but I was covering Ole Miss and Tennessee in a college football game. That was one of my first jobs as a sports college. I went to Tennessee. So obviously I was a University of Tennessee ball football fan. And at that game, and Archie Manning was a strong candidate to be Heisman Trophy winner. And people were learning about him in, around the country. And Tennessee had a great football team that year. This was 1969, 1970. And Tennessee was going down to score a touchdown, and they had fourth and one at the one, fourth and goal. And if the ball, if the pass is thrown, if the ball goes in the end zone, obviously they take a seven month lead. If it goes out of bounds, the ball goes over. It's our two men. As the pass was in the air, I came out of my press box seat as a young columnist, a young sports writer, as a Tennessee fan, and I started screaming. The ball went out of bounds, and I turned around in the press box, and there were like 50 Mississippi writers. And they all looked at me like they were going to hurt me that <laughs> for cheering in the press box, which is the rule in the old days in journalism that you never cheer in the press box. Wow. I sat back down and I sat there and I thought, is Ole Miss won the game in our team at 30 to nothing? And I said, I can't be a fan. If I'm going to do this, I can no longer be a fan. I haven't been a fan since then. And when I say that, when I speak at colleges or on the internet, I get a lot of negative feedback. You got to be a fan to be a sports writer. Well, I decided that I couldn't be a fan and be a sports writer. I had to be somebody that looked at everything objectively. Yeah. And then I didn't take sides. I pull for games. I pull for great outcomes, close games, overtimes. I pull for certain people that I have come to know over the years, but I never put the teams and I never take sides. I have always, I never bet on the game. And that's really unusual in this time period in sports history. And ESPN decided to deal to take over a betting operation nationally. But I don't think I've ever sat there during a game and said, oh, I want this team to win. And I guess if I were a gambler, I probably would have very strong feelings about that. But uh, I don't drink uh, and I don't uh, gamble. So I don't even buy I don't even buy a Chinese pickup because that's wow. that's gambling because <laughs> you that never know whether it's going to be good or not. I don't do DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I look at it objectively, but I felt good for the people of Denver, the people of Colorado, for the Denver Nuggets who have tried so long to be successful and came very close in the final run of the ABA the year that they the Nuggets played the New York Nets, and I was there, and the Nets won in six games with Julius Irving, who we talked about. And I always pulled for Julius Irving because we became very good friends when we were both kids, basically. He was a, a player who came out of University of Massachusetts, came to the ABA because he could sign early, 
you can do that in the NBA. And we met each other early on. I interviewed him. And we've been friends now for, like I talked about Bob Lyon, but Judas Irving and I have been friends for 40-something years. And I always had great respect for him. I had never seen a player. When he went up to dunk in a game, the first game I saw him play, everybody's ears popped in the entire arena. I mean, it was that, it was like a jet airplane. And I, I came to have great respect for him. I could get, I've become friends over the last 40 years or so with Michael Jordan. I had great respect and, and friendship with him. We played with a blackjack together in, in uh, Monte Carlo. Sorry about Michael Jordan. I think people know. Yes, he gambles. Um, yeah. Particularly in golf and backgammon. We played backgammon and he gambled on that. And the thing about Michael was that he always thinks he's better because he is the greatest, arguably, we could have that argument, because he's the arguably the greatest basketball player, I would call Bill Russell the greatest basketball player of all time because of the success both on the college and pro level. But Michael thought he was a better blackjack player than he really was. He thinks he's a better golfer than he really is. And so he hates to lose so much, but he does lose because he's not as good in other sports and activities as he is in basketball. And so as a result of that, we were playing blackjack together. This is a funny story. Uh, we're, we're sitting side by side. This is the dream team. Where was, the, where was this? Monte Carlo. Okay. The, the first dream, the, the actual dream team was going to Barcelona in 1992. And so the players decided in coaching staff, they'd go to Monte Carlo and just kind of relax for a week or so and play a couple of games. The greatest game I ever saw, and there's a book about it, was the inter-squad game between Michael Jordan's team and Magic Johnson's team. And there were only about six of us in the arena. Uh, the gym that the king had, or the prince had, in Monte Carlo. And uh, it was 164 to 166, and Jordan made a basket, and the game ended up being 166 to 164. And it was the greatest basketball game I've ever seen in my life. And those guys played full hard in an unconditioned gym in Monte Carlo. So that night, I'm going to the original casino in, in, in Monte Carlo. And I'm sitting at the blackjack table and Michael sits down for not playing that game. I was betting like $25 on him. He put down about $2,500. He got two eights. Anybody that plays blackjack will know this. You split eights. And he, he put down another $2,500. He got a fourth eight. And he didn't have any money. And he said to the dealer, Wait a second. And he turned around and he said, Chuck, give me some more money. Chuck turned out to be Charles Barkley. <laughs> right. I didn't know that Charles was behind us. So Charles walked over. They they hesitated the, the dealing. Barkley went to the window, got about $5,000 more, gave it to Michael and said, I want the money back. He said, I'm about to win here. He lost all four hands and I won my hand. So I won $25 and I'm kind of 
doing a little dance. How, how mad? How how mad was Mike? He kind of laughed at me and he said, "Calm it down, calm it down." <laughs> I won and he lost four hands, so he lost. Uh, it, I think it was ten thousand francs. I, I was saying dollars, but we were playing francs there. And that's the that, he gambled on himself in basketball. He gambled on himself in a lot of other areas. Wait, 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 wait. What'd you just say? Oh, you're talking about like him playing one-on-one and stuff? Yeah. I mean, in in playing in the NBA, he gambled on himself. I'm not talking about betting. Okay. Legal or illegal. He bet on himself to be the best player in the world. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So thank you for straightening me out. Yeah, yeah. I was was like, I was like, is this breaking news? I don't (laughs) know. Gambled on himself that he would be the best player. Right, right. Understood. Championship. So, are again, arguably, he could be considered the greatest player of all time, and he was considered the the greatest. ESPN did a. uh, I was working then before around the horn. On the network that was called ESPN Classic. Right, right. I I loved it. I loved that channel. Yeah, that was great. Uh, me too. And I was I was one of the guys that they interviewed about a hundred players, and they were trying to lead up to the greatest athlete of the century. And I was in the Panama Canal on New Year's Eve with my girlfriend at the time, and she said that we were getting ready to go see the fifth dimension was playing on the ship in the Panama Canal, and she said you're on TV. And they were picking the number one athlete on the museum. And they said Michael Jordan. And they had an interview with me. And I thought, well, that's strange. You'd think they'd have somebody cover them on full time in Chicago. But I told the story about the night that he got sick in the NBA finals. And I saw him outside and he threw up against the, the against a wall in Utah. After he got out of the car, and he, he had bad pizza the night before, so he didn't have the flu. He had his stomach. Right. Yeah. That food poisoning. Right. And he, he went around the corner. He said, "Hey, Woody." He went around the corner and he uh, threw up, and I could hear him throwing up. And he came back, and I said, "You're not going to play tonight, are you?" And he said, well, "I'm going to try." And he went out and had one of the greatest nights. That's when he kind of turned to the broadcasters and kind of threw his hands up in my eye. No. And uh, I think that that sort of humanity, the relationship that we had, and I went to see him play baseball in Birmingham, Alabama, and Francona was the manager of that team, who's now the manager of the Guardians, and they were playing backgammon for money, and Michael said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, in Atlanta, and I thought I'd come over and see him play baseball. Uh, he says he would play golf tomorrow. So he would play golf for baseball games. So the only thing he gambled on, and I'm not talking about actual, he, he did bet money on golf. Yeah. And probably some other things. But he, he gambled on himself to be the best basketball player in the world. I, he never gambled on himself to be the best baseball player in the world because that was never going to happen, but that was the joining part. Anyway, long answer. I don't even know the Portuguese in the last Interesting. Okay. You know, when people think about you, they think about around the horn, but you are also part of cold pizza first in 10 
which has now become first take. Do you believe the sports debate era has been good for sports media? I find it funny lately that I, I've seen a lot of stories about how Skip Bayless started the sports debate show. And that's totally foolish thing. Uh, there's a show called Pardon Interruption, which basically was the beginning. Although prior to that, there was a show called The Sports Reporter. And that came on on Sunday morning. And then Michael Wilbon sort of started Pardon Interruption, and they wanted a, a companion show, and that became Around the Horn. Shortly after that, uh, ESPN asked me to go to New York and, well, this does sound, it's not humility, but ESPN said to me, we want you to go to New York and save the show for pizza. <laughs> and I said, I can't save the show. I hadn't really, I didn't watch it. They said, well, we're going to have a debate session in that show. And so we auditioned probably 50 guys. Uh, ESPN really chose Skip Bayless. And now it's said that Skip Bayless started sports bannering. Well, no. We were doing it on Around the Horn. We were, ESPN was doing it with uh, uh, Pardon Interruption and sports reporters for years and years. And so the question was, has this been good for sports media? The idea of Around the Horn was Pardon Interruption was about two guys who were argued in the sports department at the Washington Post. The concept behind Around the Horn was you're four guys in a bar arguing sports that you're, which we've all done. You've said, you've done it. How many thousands of times people watching your podcast or listening to it have gone to a bar and a guy says, you know, uh, Michael Jordan is great, greatest player of all time. No, it's you know, Kobe Bryant. Oh, you're both wrong. And a third guy will say, yeah, it's Bill Russell. And that was the concept behind the show is just have better argue. Well, that's grown to the point now that there are, what would you guess? 20 sports bannering shows. There's uh, one that's been very successful lately that ESPN has now purchased the show and is going to put it on and it's featuring a former punter from the NFL that's made not quite a name for himself. Is, is it good? I think, good question. I think that people watching those shows think they have a better opinion than the people on the show, without making sense. I had a an email, I received tens of thousands of emails of people saying, I'm better than you. Well, you probably are. <laughs> So what? I'm here. You're not. <laughs> I got lucky. But a guy wrote me, and I, I could almost cry. I may have cried. He wrote me and said, I'm a plumber's assistant. I have a high school education. I have a wife and I have four kids. And all the guys at the bar say, you all be sports better than you can So how do I get you a job? And I felt badly for him because he wasn't going to get my job. <laughs> I had... I had trained, not for that job, but I trained as a sports journalist for like, at that point in 35, 40 years. And that was true of the original people on 
around the horn and they'll find the interruption. You have two guys that have been sports columnists for 35 years or something like that. So I think you have to have a base, you know, or do that. But I tried once, and, and I, I don't know that I've ever said this. We were working on a show that would, would have been an internet show where I would host an around the horn on the internet. And I wanted it to be four guys. Just four, you know, viewers of ESPN, guys who read ESPN, and let them argue every day. And the winner would get a prize, maybe you know, a chance to go to New York or Bristol, Connecticut, maybe try out for ESPN. And we were in the process of uh, of making that show a reality, not a reality show. Yeah, I guess we would do it. And the, the guy who was in charge of that ESPN website got fired. And the next guy uh, came along and said, I don't like that idea. I would like there to be, I really would. You asked me about, is it being good for media? And I'd love to see a show on TV where there's four guys, five guys, three guys, whatever it might be. And when I say guys, I mean women or men, that would be out of a bar, off the street, with normal jobs, debating sports. That's one that's one show that's missing. Because the show we, we the person we were just talking about, Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp has left his show, and so they're out looking for somebody. I think it'll be Richard Sherman, and I think he's gonna be a great, great banter woman on sports media. Because Steve was brilliant. That was kind of lost in, in his trash talking and his loud talking. But Sherman went to Stanford and he was a brilliant student and he's got a great background. So I'm sitting here talking about another network, but I, I think he would be good for that show and, and good for challenging Skip Bayless. But I was Skip's first challenger and I kicked his butt. All the every morning I kicked his ass all the time. <laughs> how, how, how was how was how was it working with Skip? Uh, he and I will say this about and we say a positive, but we call it a negative. He he actually means everything he says. I worked with him for three years, maybe longer than anybody. Woody, I find I find that hard to believe. I do too. But he genuinely, before we'd gone there, and that show came on about eight o'clock in the morning, and we would have meetings and talk about it. He didn't make up stuff. There's a possibility that if the subject wasn't serious, I might take the other side. I believed in what I was saying, but I would say it in a joking way sometimes. But he is serious. I mean, when he picked on LeBron, still does, he means it. He doesn't do it for the sake of television. He does it because that's what he genuinely believes. And I was bidding enough to know that. That was the positive. The negative was working with him. It was not very much fun. I don't know how I was to put it. I wasn't enjoying myself like I was with people like uh, Bob Ryan, Tim Kalashaw, Bill Plasky, even Jay Mariotti, who has that same kind of Skip Bayless attitude. Uh, Bomani Jones over the years, or Pablo Torres. I, I, I've always had fun on Around the Horn because it, 
was in the sense of we're having fun here. It was not even fun with Skip Bayless. It was it was difficult, not the task, but it was difficult to deal with him all the time because he would do six Red Bulls during the two hours we were on the air, <laughs> and he would write. 15 pages of legal notes and I would write one postcard that would say one word on it. I'd say X sucks. And that would be everything that came out of my mouth was just extemporaneously. And he had planned out his 10 pages. And he'd say to me, I only got through eight pages. And I went, I got through one postcard that had two words on it. I said, don't blame me. We got into a fight on the air. It's a famous story. Uh, we got into a fight on the air, and I went for him around the table, and it spilled out into the studio and out onto the street in New York City because we had doors that where we were doing the show at the New York Hotel that actually went right out into Eighth Avenue, and uh, that really was sort of. I always used to wonder how Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, and other uh, comedy acts or partners. Why they didn't? How did Paul McCartney, John Lennon fall apart? Well, it's very easy when you're with someone all the time that it could be worse than marriage. It's bad because eventually you just get tired of it. And I think it will skip it over the years and said that you know I was just comic relief, but. Uh, we had a, we had quite a run there before uh, there went awry, and, and we got where we didn't like each other. But I worked with him, and I worked with Stephen A. Smith on uh, a show called Dream Job for a couple of years, and I worked with Jay Mariotti, who was rather an ontologist, and I, I figured that'll end up being on my tombstone that I worked. I'm the only guy in history that worked with all three of them and all three all of us didn't get all three. So what you might see on television is real. Why did Sometimes why did you why didn't you get along with Stephen A? I, I'm not trying to avoid your question. I'm, I'm trying to see how to fit this world. Stephen A was beat up with himself before he deserved to be beat up with himself. Wait, say that again. That's a that's a term when somebody is so full of himself. How about uh, that? Full of himself before he deserved to be full of himself. Maybe okay. he's you... earned that right now, but when <laughs> early in his career at ESPN, and ESPN had certainly more problems than I had with him because they fired him. I mean, he, yeah, and then he came back. Let me ask you this, Woody. Let me let me ask you this, Woody. Do you think do you think that was a self-fulfilling prophecy because of his confidence that led him to become the face of ESPN? I think that he showed an incredible ability to not only come back, but come back greater mm. than he was, but at the same time maybe realize that he had to change his attitude. He had been a sports writer in Philadelphia, and he was not well liked by the other writers there, which is not a problem. I haven't been liked by anybody I've ever worked with. 
But I, when I say he's full of himself, he's full of himself in a Howard Cosell kind of way. Mm. And Howard Cosell rose above being somebody that people thought was just full of himself. He reached a point where half the people hated him, half the people liked him. And I, I think that's still kind of the same way for Stephen A. Smith. That half the people hate him. Is do you think? Do you do you do you think that's the formula of beating a leading voice, having half the people love you and half the people hate you? Yes. When I when I as a young sports columnist, and I got offers from a lot of places around the country, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Atlanta, and I came to Denver, and I realized this long before the internet, that half the people hated me and half the people liked me because I was uh, antagonistic and I was uh, somewhat egotistical and maybe uh, certainly uh, controversial, that if you have 100% of the people liking you, that's not much fun for life. And if 100 people, 100% of the people hate you, then you're a fave. You <laughs> so I think the proper place to be is in the middle there where Howard Cosell became the biggest name in sports. We were talking about sports banner. He sports he was sports banner with himself. Not with somebody else, it, except Muhammad Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali and, and Howard Cosell were maybe the first sports bannering pair, more so than anybody else, because Muhammad would do his act and Howard would do his act. I think that Stephen A. Smith going away for he didn't go away because he was still to sports talk radio in New York City. But I think going away from the spotlight of ESPN, when he came back, I think he was a new man. And people would say, well, it was always the same. He was a controlled Stephen A. Smith. Uh... People say, how do you say that the way he speaks now? Well, when he first was in ESPN, he was not under control. He was trying to make a name for himself, and he was trying to be bigger than life. And now he is life. He's not bigger than life now. He is his life. I, I like Stephen A. Smith. I think he's accomplished a great deal. I, I spent time talking with him about his background, his love for the English language, which I think mm. he overuses sometimes. But his love for the English <laughs> language, for what his mother did for him, for his background, I think that's one of the rare accomplishments. Of, I, I had a, a, a man who was a billionaire I was friends with him. He said, "You really don't understand success until you fail." And he lost all his money and then had to redo it again. Stephen A. lost his position nationally with ESPN and had to start all over again. Basically, that's unfair. Start closer to the bottom and look where he's worked himself up to. Uh, so I have great appreciation for that. But we were. Uh, on that show, Dream Job, and I don't know whether you remember it, people probably don't, but it, it was ESPN's version of American Idol, America's Got Talent, that when ESPN had sports bars all over the country, they had tryouts, and they were picking 12 people to be on the show, and the winner of the show got to be an anchor on ESPN for a year, got a 
Mustang convertible, and I think $95,000. So an SB is $95,000. And so they, at these sports bars, ESPN sports bars, they, they audition people and then they sent us 12 finalists like you do on American Idol. And the, the producers wanted me to be sort of like Simon Cole on that show. People familiar with him on American Idol and American Tech Thailand. They wanted me to be kind of the loose cannon. But Stephen A. Smith tried to be more of a loose cannon than I was. I was doing it sort of in a funny way. He was doing it in a serious way. Why the chalkboard, Woody? And um, do, would it bother you if you remember for that after having such a great career? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way I... I, I, I saw something... Uh, Robbie Robertson, the, the band, just died. And he's remembered for writing songs for the band and being such a successful musician. And I had a thought there for about 77... And I said, oh, when I died in the first paragraph, it's going to say, he's a guy who had a chalkboard on TV. Uh, so, yes, to answer your question specifically, it started out, I was in New York doing cold pizza, making a quick story. And I had an assistant that I had taken from Denver to New York with me. And I, I had this terrible plain background in this studio I was using. And I said, we need something behind me. And he said, well, what are you thinking about? I said, I don't know. And we were walking down the street in Manhattan, and we walked past Toys R Us. True story. And I said, well, let's look in Toys R Us. And we went in there. We saw a blackboard. And it had magnetic letters. And so we bought one, and we put it behind us. And it you only had enough letters for like three words. And I put Yankees suck or something on there. And then we ordered a blackboard and he would write, I would come up with some kind of saying and he would write it. And we were on ESPN for about a week and I got a call from vice president of ESPN and he said, lose the blackboard. That's not ESPN. Get rid of the blackboard. And I'm like, okay, you're just trying something. A week later, he called back and he said, put the blackboard back up. And I said, Oh, to get so many responses from viewers, he said, no, the president of ESPN likes it. So it went wow. back up, and that was uh, 20 years ago, and it's been there ever since. And it's like me dragging it around, because I've had to come up with, I don't know, 10,000 whiteboards. Because nobody helps me. I have an assistant who writes to them. She writes them on the board, but she doesn't ever given she's never once given me i've had it she's been with me for about three years and not, not once has she ever recommended one <laughs> and i think uh i've gotten emails about twice that said here's a good idea for blackboard <laughs> so i sit around and i usually write them on bar napkins when i'm drunk or something <laughs> and that's how it's if nobody else is doing it so and i tried to maybe tone it down and I thought, you know, well, someday we'll find me. that'll be the end of the blackboard. But so far we've kept it. And I and I tried to retire two or three years ago and they went, No, no, you're still here. Woody, and thank I, you. No, I appreciate this. Let's talk again because we'll talk 
European basketball and uh, give me some stories about. Well, let me know. We could always talk basketball. Would you really appreciate you? Thanks for taking the time. Where can we find you? Where are you on social media? Like, where do you hang out on social media these days where the people can reach you? I I have a blackboard for the next time I'm on, by the way. I'm now on X. Why? Oh, X. Okay. Okay. You have to kind of, a lot of my blackboards you have to look at, but why am I on X? Ah. (laughs) I don't want to be on X. That's what what we call a bar. What do you got bars, Woody? I guess. (laughs) <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you and uh and i have respect for your history in basketball and your respect doing the podcast and good luck with it i really appreciate you and i definitely have respect for your journalistic career in totality not just the chalkboard not just around the horn not just espn because i know it was a long journey before all of that so when i die will you get up at the funeral and say that's those same words and say you know, it was not all about his blackboard. <laughs> I got you, Woody. I got you. Thank you. Thanks have for a, being with me. Have a great one. Thank you. There it was. Big shouts to Woody for joining in. We appreciate you. Big shouts to everyone who tunes into the show across the globe. Don't forget to rate, review, punch down on that subscribe button. Be on the lookout for episode 500 combo out.